Let's all bow before the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come together this morning with grateful hearts. We're thankful for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, whose perfect life and sacrificial death are the sole basis for our salvation. We freely admit that there's nothing in us that would merit your mercy and grace apart from the work of, G of Jesus Christ. If there are those among us who have never experienced your saving grace, we pray that this might be the hour when your spirit would enlighten their hearts and minds to these wonderful truths. And as we come together this morning, Lord, we also pray that this time of worship may be pleasing to you, that our hearts and minds will be open and receptive to hear your word and to submit ourselves to whatever you require of us. May your word teach, rebuke, correct, and train us in righteousness. And above all, may your son be glorified in all that is said and done here this morning. For we ask all this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Please be seated. Welcome to Community Bible Church this morning. Pastor Ken and his family are, as he mentioned last week, spending Labor Day weekend on the west side of the state. So today our own Billy Cochran will be doing the preaching. Billy has been in our church's pastors in training program for a couple of years, and he and his wife Madison have made good progress in it. So much, so much, <laughs> wow, <laughs> I don't know what that means, brother, if it's an oven or not. <laughs> I was going to say so much progress <laughs> that, uh, um, that he will be coming on our church staff next summer. He'll uh, continue his uh, theological education at Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary starting next fall. So a week from, from this year, he'll be starting there uh, at Detroit Baptist. And so we look forward to what God has in store for the Cochrans in the future. And today we look forward to hearing Billy as he comes to share in God's word with us a little bit later in the service. Colossians 3. And these gentlemen uh, here, the ushers coming down the aisles, grab their attention, uh, and they've got some Bibles to give to you that are already marked at today's passage um, right at the right page. And that's our gift to you. If you don't have one, um, please take that home. Keep that and bring it every Sunday morning when you come back because we would love to have you. And uh, I'd like to say thank you to Dr. Combs for the introduction. I told him no antics and what happens, uh, you know, he cuts the mic out. Um, and also to Pastor Ken, who's on the west side, we'll give him a hearty go blue. Uh, thank you all for being here uh, on this Labor Day weekend. Uh, Labor Day signifies a few things in our culture, a couple of different things. Uh, for one, it signifies the going back to school as a big uh, thing that our culture looks at Labor Day as. And so for some of us, that's the frantic getting everything ready for everybody to go back to school. 
for us, three kids under 10 makes it very difficult to now get to bed on time, to get up before seven in the morning and get out the door before eight in the morning, which pray for us, family. That is a, a hefty task. Um, but I, I say that first off because when I go to pray here in a little bit, um, I am going to take a little time to dedicate a little extra time of that prayer to our youth. Okay, we, uh, we have a lot of youth that are getting ready to go back to school, and we've got a lot of different youth. We've got kids that are homeschooled, we've got kids in the public school, and we've got kids in the private school. And church family, you know this, um, our youth are, are faced with a hefty task of being a Christian in today's society. And we need to make sure that they all know that this family right here, inside this building, the people here, we are their family, we love them, we support them, and they always have a home here. And let them always know that. And so I charge you that as we go out after the service today, that if you see one of our youth, that you tell them, we're praying for you, we're thinking of you, um, and we hope that you have a great year. In addition to that, that always brings us to the parents. We'll pray for our parents, we'll pray for our teachers, um, but really all of us um, when we think about that. Outside of school starting, I actually, y'all will have to forgive me, I had to look up the actual reason why we celebrate Labor Day, because I was like, okay, it's just going back to school. Uh, so generally we know the idea here, but it is essentially to honor and acknowledge the contributions and achievements of American workers. And so we get a day off of work. That's usually, for most of us, that's like, you're either going up north, you're going on some vacation, or you're getting caught up on all of the lawn work that you need to do. Um, but it started back, it's like the late 1800s, the American Revolution, people were extremely, working extremely hard. They were working, it was like 12-hour days um, during the Industrial Revolution, seven days a week, right? And people were working extremely hard just to make ends meet. And so... People, they wanted some type of more acknowledgement, some type of more recognition of us working this hard. And I found that to be interesting because, you know, in my secular job, or as Pastor Ken would say, in like my real job that I used to do, um, I work at Rocket Mortgage. And I have the privilege of bringing all the new people in and being one of the first faces that they see. And one of the first questions that we ask everybody is, why are you here? Why are you starting your career here? What is in it for you? Because it is going to become very difficult. It is going to become very challenging. And what is going to pull you through the hard times? What is going to help you push through when this job becomes incredibly difficult? Why are you here? What is your purpose? And we get all kinds of answers, and, and most of them are fine, right? I'm here because I want to find a successful career. I want to be financially stable. I want to help provide for my family. Uh, I want to travel the world. I want to do fill in the blank, right? But here's what I found, family, is that typically one of two things happens with that. Either one, they can't cut it, and then thus they're not able to achieve what they wanted to achieve, and so then they're faced with the question, is my why actually strong enough? Or they actually do attain it and find the success, but then they've actually accomplished their why, so what keeps me going? I didn't make it, so now I'm crumbled. 
I did make it, but now what's next? You see, what, what happens is people tend to tie their identity to their performance. Their, what they do becomes who they are. You've heard this said before, right? And that's different for us because that's not sustainable. That will not sustain you. It will not sustain long-term. You will start having questions, and you've built your foundation on faulty ground when you think that way. The late, great Tim Keller said this, your identity, Christian, is received. Your identity is not achieved. Let that sink in. You're a child of God, a son and daughter, every single one of you sitting here, of our Father in heaven. And so your identity is not tied to what you do, but then that begs the question, Christian, why do you do what you do? Christian, why do you show up the way that you do every day? Christian, why do you speak the way that you speak? Christian, why do you hold yourself the way that you hold yourself? Why do you do the way you show up every day? Why do you do it that way? You see, we're faced with that question, but we don't have to look far because the Bible is an incredible book if you didn't know that. It gives us all the answers. And first, I'm going to, this is an old uh, trick, corporate trick, if you will, but I'm going to start with the end in mind. Our verses today that we're in, we're in Colossians 3, 1 through 17. I'm actually going to start with verse 17. And so if you look at it with me, verse 17 answers why we do what we do, family. I'm going to read it. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. You see, doing whatever we do in the name of the Lord Jesus means here, per the Expositor's Bible Commentary, that in whatever we do, we are acting as representatives of the Lord. Everything you do, and it says word or deed, everything you do and or say, you are acting as a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some of you are like, "Woo, that's a hefty task, brother. It is but it is a sustainable, beautiful task that we run for every single day because the New Testament, which we all follow and believe in, it doesn't give us a detailed code of rules. It doesn't say, here's your checklist. That's not how it is, family. But it does give us basic principles of Christian living that we can apply to our life every single day. And so going about as Christ's representative in whatever vocation that we're in. See, some of you are like, well, I don't work out in the workforce. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, yes, you as employee, great. I'm talking you as husband, yes. You as mother, you as grandmother, you as fill in the blank, you as stay-at-home mom, whatever vocation you do, whatever thing that you do, that we do that in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the verses we are going to get in today, they will precede this one and tell us exactly why we should show up this way and how we should represent the Lord well. And we should take very good caution as we look into that. So let's ask God to help us as we work through the scripture today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, thank you so much for allowing us to be here today. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you for the beautiful weather we have. Thank you for the sun rising. The sun listens to you every morning when you tell it to rise. Thank you for bringing us together as a church family. 
Thank you for giving us our safety. Lord, this Sunday, especially over Labor Day weekend, we want to offer a special prayer, a prayer to our youth, that as they get ready to go into another school year, that they think of the task at hand, being a Christian in a fallen world, being a, a young student Christian in a fallen world. Lord, we pray that you would be in those hearts, that you would provide these youth with a fierce courage to stand up for you and to stand up for what they believe in, that they would know you, Lord, and have a close relationship with you. Father, we pray for those parents of those youth, that their children are going to experience a lot of things, and that our parents are equipped, that they're in their Bibles looking for the answers, not on Google, and that you would give them the clarity to be able to teach and admonish and discipline accurately their youth to ensure they're raising up our next generation that has a fire for the Lord. We pray for our teachers, Lord, that as though sometimes it may be difficult to preach Jesus in the classroom, we know that their character can be on display and that character can mirror Jesus. It can mirror you. So give them that power. Give them that energy. It's exhausting, Lord. Give them the energy. Give them the power to be able to show up. And Lord, for all of us, as we reflect on a time right now, as Labor Day, we reflect on why we do what we do. Why do we work the way that we work? Why do we show up the way that we show up? We do it because you put your son on a cross for us. You put nails in his hand and you put to death everything we do wrong. And you allowed us the grace and mercy. Father, we praise your holy name. Let your words come through my heart and out to these folks sitting here because we love you and we pray that your presence would be felt. Lord, in your name we pray. Amen. So I say first in your outline, hopefully you all have received one of those. Um, and it points out that we're in Colossians 3. If you haven't, we got a couple at the doors to pick up. But I say first in our outline that we are united with him. We are united with him. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. You see, verse 1 is saying you've been raised with Christ. But just as Christ's physical resurrection was preceded by his physical death, so our spiritual resurrection assumes our spiritual death to sin. So I say in your outline, sub-bullet point, is that we are united, first off, in his death in his death. When you see in the, in the verse that it starts in chapter, or verse 1, it says, since then, we can tie that directly to the chapter that's preceding this. It's tying it directly up to the end of chapter 2. And this is what it says. You may not even have to flip the page. You just go up a couple of lines. It says this in chapter uh, 2, verse 20. It says, since you died with Christ, to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. You see, the idea there, family, is that 
to God, our, our relationship is not based on our keeping an elaborate set of rules. You see, if you know anything about your Bible, we tried doing that. We tried doing that in the Old Testament time after time after time after generation, and it didn't work. We couldn't keep a perfect set of rules. We failed that. And what's happening here in Colossae, uh, let me give you a little context. The Apostle Paul actually never been to Colossae, but one of his uh, people that he taught the gospel to brought the word of the Lord to Colossae, and that's where we got our Colossians. This letter is being written by the Apostle Paul to the people, uh, Christians, in Colossae. And specifically, he is in prison in Rome, and he is getting this news. Here's the news that he's getting. He's getting the news that these Christians in Colossae are being faced with two tasks, or two challenges, if you will. On one hand, these are are non-Jew Christians. They have a Jewish population there. And the Jews, guess what they're trying to say to the Christians? That's cool, you can do your Christian thing, but you need to add on some specific rules that you need to abide by as well. So they're trying to bring in a little bit of legalism, if you will. And they're trying to say, yeah, it's, your, your Christ is not enough. You need to also do some more things as well. So that's one side they're facing it. On the other side, you know what they're facing? They're facing non-Jews that have a Gnostic belief or a, um, if I could put it this way, a human philosophy that says, generally God is good, that's fine, you can have that, but you don't really need to believe in this Jesus he was more of like just like a prophet. You don't need to go so you know, hard on thinking about Jesus on a cross. You can just generally believe that people are good. Does this, I don't know, crazy sound like things that are still active as of this day? People who are telling you you need to do more in following some legalism. People who are telling you you don't need to do as much as you are doing. The people of this day in Colossae were facing the exact same thing. And so we need to know, right, as we are tempted from different ways, one thing that the Apostle Paul says earlier in chapter 2, he says, the law has been nailed to the cross. We no longer have to abide to the Old Testament law because it's been nailed to the cross. And God has given us a perfect set of rules that no one could keep. We could not keep it. And so we're all subject to the penalties for that failure. But Christ's death on the cross freed us from the curse of the law as he paid the penalty in full. Amen, brothers and sisters. He paid every single penalty that you will ever commit in full. And so Christ's death in our union with it means we are no longer in debt to the law, nor is our spiritual life found in keeping other rules. So we work as representative of the Lord because we're united with him in his death. But I also say in your outline, we are united with him in his resurrection. Again, I'm going to read verse th- or chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above. When we came to Christ, family, and if you haven't already, I pray deeply that you would come to Christ, that this would stir up in your soul today, and that Christ would move upon you. You see, when we were saved, our alliances, our values, everything in our life was radically reordered to be focused on Christ. And because of that, we've been moved to a new spiritual realm. Our hearts desire Christ. Where is he now? He's at the right hand of the Father. So we're motivated now by the priorities of heaven, not of earth. I say this usually every time I get up here, but there's a reason why we don't have Jesus up on this cross, family. 
because Jesus is no longer on the cross. He's at the right, right hand of God the Father, and that's where our minds need to be, be thinking of that. And it says that as we follow in verse 2, set your minds now on things above, not on earthly things. So we're now motivated by and think about what represents Christ well in all that we do. And I hope that when you feel this, it's not a discouragement. It's not a, I don't do very good at this. It is an encouragement that we have a reason, a purpose that is bigger than I want to provide for my family. It's bigger than that. Although that's good, we have a purpose that is bigger, family. And you, you got to ask yourself, what do I think about? What is flooding my mind? And I'm going to talk about that a little bit later so you can hold that thought. But as for transformed people, those things hold no sway compared to our desire to be with and please the Lord. And so we work and we order our lives accordingly. And verses 3 and 4 in your Bible move beyond the present reason we work for the Lord to a future reason. It says this, For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you will also appear with him in glory. That is, the one who motivates us and has our hearts is not seen. And sometimes that can cause people to ridicule you because they don't see the physical, tangible Jesus. It's now hidden, but when the Lord returns, it will be clear. And I'm going to say this with hard emphasis. Let's make some eye contact. It is now hidden, but when the Lord returns, it will be clear to all why we lived as we did. You see, as a Christian, sometimes there can pose this question that says, why why do I show up the way that I show up? Youth, why do I act the way that I act? Why do I show up? Why do I act differently than everybody else who seems to be having the best time of their life? Why do I stand firm in my faith? And this is telling us, right here, family, that when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, which he will return, and it will be incredible, when he returns, it will be clear to all, not just us, why we chose to live the life that we chose to live. Amen, brothers and sisters. The word translated appears is one that emphasizes the open display of Christ at his coming. And verse 4 says, when that happens, we too will be openly displayed with him we will be united with him in his resurrection. So we work as representatives of the Lord because we are united with him. And because I say secondly is your bullet point number two in your outline, we are being changed into him. We are being changed into him. You see, I'm going to skip up a little bit. Verse nine says this, you have taken your old self with its practices and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed and knowledge in the image of its creator. And this is the objective, the change project that God is doing in his people, in all of us, is that we should become like Jesus. If you looked at the title of your outline, what does it say? The sincerest form of flattery. You know what that is. We are trying to become like Jesus. And so uh, we can look elsewhere in scripture that emphasizes this even further. The Bible says in the same apostle in Romans, uh, we'll pull it up on the board so everybody can see it, but it says, those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. He is predestining us to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That is the task at hand. 
or in the passage that Pastor Larry read earlier from Ephesians 4, we're told this, put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness, Ephesians 4.24. So God's objective, it's for our salvation and it's for our sanctification that we're progressively being changed into the image of Christ. It's not a, all right, I did this prayer, I came to, to Jesus, now I can still go back and live whatever life I want to live. That's not what we believe in. In fact, the Apostle Paul gets pretty upset about that when people ask him that in the Bible. It's not that. And so that happens with our active participation, and that's why we're commanded here in passages like Ephesians 4 to put off certain things because we died to the old life and we put on other things that are consistent with our life in Christ who is of supreme value and ranks above all else. And if I could, like in the Greek, I think it doesn't do it enough justice when it says put off and put on. You generally are like, yeah, that makes sense. But I need you to understand the emphasis that the, the, the Greek language is saying here is that put off is to rip off, to throw off, to cast it off of me, the filthy dirtiness of sin. It, it reminds me of my kids when they get home from school. They come in the front door and it is like an explosion hit. It is clothes, shoes, socks, everything in the world is thrown off at that front door. Okay, now we've got some rules. My wife is incredible. And she says, you pick all that up and you take that upstairs. But there is this casting off, like I need to be freed from these clothes that I sat in and had to learn all day. You cast that off, right? That is that same emphatic tone that we use when we cast sin off of us. Our old life, our old life. For some of us, that was an old life that started at the age of 12. For some of us, that was an age of 19. For some of us, that was an age of 45 that we decided to cast that old life off. And we continue to cast that off every single day. Now, verse 11, and I love that the Apostle Paul puts this in. He said, here where we live, what we're trying to accomplish, there is no Gentile or Jew. It says there are no circumcised or uncircumcised, no barbarian or Scythian, no slave or free. But who? Christ is in all and is in all. He is all and is in all. And so the uh, Expositor's Bible Commentary says this, when talking about Greek or Jew, there is no national privilege. It doesn't matter what country you're from. It doesn't matter your heritage of where you come from. When it talks of circumcised or uncircumcised, it doesn't matter the legal or ceremonial standing that you have had. When it talks about the barbarians or the Scythian, it talks about, you know, those who spoke Greek and didn't or foreigners um, or the latter of like lower on the spectrum. Um, you see the barbarians thought the Scythians were, were crazy, that they were wild. Um, and there is none of that or slave or free. There is no social caste matter anymore. So what this is saying is taking polar opposites and saying that doesn't matter anymore because what matters? Jesus Christ matters. And that's to this day, family, when you think of our statures of where we're at, it doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor. It doesn't matter how you were raised up. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is, what your race is. What matters is Jesus Christ. And that is what the apostle Paul is saying. No matter what, it's Jesus Christ. And so I say this as our sub-bullet point. Next, we put off sin. 
we put off sin. So I'm going to read here uh, from starting in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Verse 9, do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices. The great theologian John Owen said this, the choicest believers who are assuredly freed from the condemning power of sin ought yet to make it their business all the days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. He went on to ask his congregation, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Seize not a day from this work in church family. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Those are hard words to swallow. But what he is saying is that if you are not actively trying to put to death sin in your life, you are allowing it a place to reside. And when you allow a bacteria like that to reside, you know what happens, family. It multiplies and it grows, and you cannot let that happen. We have to put to death sin. We have to kill it every single day. We can't expect it to just happen, okay? We have to work hard at it. This is why you hear people say, you need to read your Bible. You need to be praying. It's not because we want you to do more work. It's because it takes active work to be killing sin every single day. And so we find in this, in this passage right here that we just read from the Apostle Paul, he gives us two lists, if you notice. There's two different lists in there. The first one is more of a personal list. It's going to be telling us, going to tell us to look in internally a little bit. The second one's a little bit more social. The first being more how we feel. The second being more how we talk. And it's not, I want to be careful, this is not an exhausted list of sin. It's not every single sin that could be committed. But what it does, what the apostle does do a very good job of, and I'm going to walk us right through just like he did, it's a pathology of the sin. How it goes from the action that actually happened, but as we know, where did that come from? Inside right? So we're going to walk through that just like the Apostle Paul did and exactly how that sin comes. And I'm going to really focus mainly on the first list, which if you're following along, it's in, it's in verse 5. You see the Apostle's taking us from action deep down to the motive. Behind every sinful action you have, there is a deeper, deeper reason why that sin is coming out. And that's exactly what the Apostle does. If you are a visual learner like myself, then this might help you think of the tree and the fruit. Bad fruit means what? Bad root. Good fruit, good root. So when you think of the bad fruit, disgusting, that is the action. That's what you're seeing. That's what you're tasting. That is what we start off with, the sexual immorality. It doesn't happen overnight, family. You know that. That is the fruit that we're seeing. But the Apostle Paul does an incredible job of moving us through then. If, if that's not just the action, if it's not just the sin, then where does that come from? Well, you see next he says impurity. Or you could better say evil thoughts. 
You see, the product that comes out of us, where does it come from? Within us, okay? So you see that it's a problem inside of us, and the gospel, and the gospel of Mark says this. We'll pull it up in chapter 7, verse 20 and 21 say this. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Now, I told you I was going to talk about what we're thinking about, right? Now is that time. Subjecting yourself to impure thinking, evil thoughts. Well, that's like playing with fire. I want to take a moment to speak on this, and I'm really going to emphasize um, our youth a little bit. Don't feel like I'm picking on you guys. I teach you every Sunday, um, but also our parents around this. But really, this goes to all of us, and it's really talking about the use of social media. I'm going to just read a, a quick expert, uh, excerpt out of the Gospel Coalition by author Joe Carter. He says this, an estimated 95% of teenagers and 40% of children aged 8 to 12 are on social media, often exposed to extreme and harmful content. Those spending more than three hours a day on these platforms are twice as likely to experience depression and anxiety. Have you heard that in our society as of recently? Additionally, one-third or more of girls specifically aged 11 to 15, have reported feeling addicted to certain platforms. And so the author says this, we must become more aware of how communication technologies shape our thinking and our actions and our interactions. We must be thinking about what we are putting in here because the Apostle Paul just told us what, told us what we put in here, what happens? It comes out in how we act, Right? And so we need to be feeding our minds with healthy information. You see, the beauty of technology, or you'll start hearing this more often, artificial intelligence, there is a common grace to these things, a common grace from the Lord that says these things are good. There, there is good that you can do with this information. You can find, you can type in, can you just give me some verses on fill in the blank, and it will pull up every Bible verse that hits that. Whereas, you know, back in the day, man, you had to go to the public library and look up a bunch of commentaries and try to figure out what talks to this. There's a common grace in that. But there is also an extreme danger in that as well. And so as we transition on, so we saw it talk about the impure thoughts, the impurity. Then the apostle moves to lust. Lust. I like how the ESV and the NASB translate this. They, you know what they say? They say passion. Naturally, we don't use passion as a negative connotation, right? We say, man, he's very passionate about this. But you have to understand, passion in and of itself or lust is this fire in your belly. But that fire in the belly can be fueled for sometimes good, can also be fueled for what? Sometimes bad. You can be very passionate, lustful over something that's very bad, and then the wheels start turning and you start thinking, and then the action proceeds or happens after, right? Now, behind that evil desire, which is a little bit, or behind that passion, as we see the apostle says, is the evil desire, which goes a little bit deeper than passion. Built into our flesh is sin. Sin, evil desire. You see, you have to understand that as a Christian, that when you were born, you were a sinner. 
You have to understand that. This story doesn't make sense if you didn't believe that you were a sinner and needed somebody to die on a cross for you. So you have to understand that your flesh, this is why we say sometimes when we get up to heaven, we might have a word or two for, for Adam. And that right? Because we had to deal with this. But I digress. Getting closer to the root as we track on. We do these bad actions because of bad thoughts, and we have a natural bent of passion because we know we have sin in our flesh. But what activates this sin, family? Greed. Greed. Some translations say this, covetousness. That's like an Old Testament word, okay? Coveting for something that is not yours, wanting something that is not yours. It's the basic, hear this, the basic motive of all sin. Let that sink in the the soul a little bit. The basic motive of all sin. This was behind Satan's fall. Why did Satan become who he became? What did he want? He coveted and wanted God's place. He wanted to be God. It is the desire that you have something that you have no right to having, but you want it bad. It is the opposite of contentment. It's the desire to have more than you have. You want something that God did not give you. You look at your life and you look at God and you say, no, you didn't give me what I deserve. That is greedy. And then what happens in that process? The apostle Paul tells us exactly what that is. What is that called now? Because who have you elevated to be God? Yourself. And so as we get to the root, what is that word? idolatry. The fruit, the bad fruit, was you committed a bad action. At the root in your heart is that you believe you're a better God than God is. You are trying to make yourself happy. You start worshiping yourself more than you worship God. And so you put yourself and your happiness over that of what God has given you. And so we get ideas or identities like this. Do you? That's a bad place to be. If you are truly going to do the things that are in your heart, that's going to lead to a life of corruption. Be you. Be your authentic self. Well, if we're being real honest, our authentic, our authentic self is what? A child of God. Not what your fleshly desires are that you think make you happy. Or our, our society would say, live your best life. What best life are we referring to? Are we referring to a best life that gets you in incredible amounts of debt, that gets you divorced because you wanted to frantically run out and have a lot of fun? Is that living your best life? You see, our society says these things with zero absolute truth. They don't bring you happiness. Or you get... Uh, the, the great country singer Luke Bryan sings a song that says this, I believe most people are good. You see, if you believe most people are good, then when somebody does something bad to you, what happens to your values and your philosophy of life? Because somebody will do something bad to you. In fact, there's probably a brother or sister here that did something that upset you. So then what? Now is God not good? How do you justify this? Or my professor in seminary would say this. We live in a therapeutic times. Family, hear this. We live in a therapeutic times, which 
we are all victims, but none of us are sinners. Think about that. Now, I'm not against counseling. I'm not against the therapy. But you have to be cautious of saying everything that happens to me is because I'm a victim, not because I'm a sinner. You have to be real careful of that family because you are a sinner. And some of the reasons things aren't going great in your life are because of the things that you did. And you need to take ownership for that. Or C.S. Lewis said it best this way. Human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. Family, this is this all this story talks about. Time after time after time after time, people are chasing their own happiness rather than living a life that is glorifying Jesus Christ. That is what we're called to do. That is why we do what we do. Or lastly, and very popularly quoted, don't worry be happy. You see, the reason why I wanted to preach this today and why God placed it in my heart is because the emphasis of the whole book of Colossians is this. If you walk out of here and this is the only thing you heard, please, eyes up and listen to this. The whole theme of Colossians is this. It is the complete adequacy of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. He is all we need, family. The complete adequacy And this is contrasted with the emptiness of mere human philosophies. For time and time again, people think they've got it all figured out. And they will tell you and wax the ears a little bit that it's about your happiness. It's not. Because your true happiness is going to come in glorifying your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's all this book is about. It's the complete adequacy of Jesus Christ. Now, I won't belabor the second list much, much longer because they'll start playing like the Emmy Award music, right? And I'll have to get out of here. But I do think we started a tad later. I don't know. It might just be me. I won't, I won't belabor the second bullet, the, the list that Apostle Paul does. But I will say this. When it comes to the second list where it was talking about the anger and the rage and the malice and how we speak, the counselor Paul Tripp says this. You are on extreme spiritual danger when complaint fills your heart more than gratitude does. I need you to know, when your heart's in a place where it is filled with complaints, everywhere you go, everybody knows you're going to complain about something. You're going to complain about something. You're going to complain about someone. You're going to complain about the weather. You're going to complain about every single thing. You're going to complain about the life that you've been given. You're going to complain about the spouse that you've been given. You're going to complain about the work that you got to do. You got to complain about missing the promotion. You got to complain about not getting a raise. You got to get... When complaint fills your heart more than gratitude does, you are in extreme spiritual danger. And when you have a heart that is filled with anger, guess how that comes out to others all around you? Bad speech. You talk with anger. You talk, you talk nasty. You talk bad. You talk, is it anything that is encouraging? Typically it is not. And so we put off sin. Be happy to know that was my longest point. And I mentioned in our outline, lastly, we put on righteousness. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, I'm in verse 12, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all of these virtues, family, put on love, 
which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. You see, when we let Christ in and Christ is our all, we then can live a life that puts on the virtue of love. There's no better verse than 1 John 4 that exemplifies this for us, and we'll pull it up on the slide. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. But listen, whoever does not love, whoever does, not love does not know God, because God is what? God is love. And that's ex- precisely what we want to do in the most sincerest form of flattery, we want to be like Jesus. Copy and live out his life. And so our take-home truth is this. Christ's people are to reflect his character in all that we do. Let's go to the Lord in prayer because this is a hefty ask and a hefty challenge. Heavenly Father, Lord, you have tasked us today with a challenge that is not easy, a challenge that is difficult, but it is oh so worthy. And we pray to you in the early, early morning today, we ask that you would stir up in our souls and in our hearts this desire to ask ourselves why we show up the way that we show up. Well, we do everything we do in word and in deed to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ and to give thanks to you, our Father, for all that you have given us, especially given us your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray for those in the audience today that have never given their life to you and to your son, Jesus Christ, that their heart would be stirred by your words today, the words of the Bible, that they would be thinking, what do I need to do? Why do I live the life I live? What is my identity? Lord, that you would work in that heart and you would remind that son and daughter of yours that they are a child of yours and that they might come to you, that they might pray in their hearts right now, Lord Jesus Christ, I ask for forgiveness of my sins, that they would repent. They don't want to live their way anymore. They put off their sin. They kill their sin and want to come and live with you in a life with you for the rest of their life. Father, I pray that there are souls out there right now that are granting that prayer and coming to you. And Father, I pray that our church family would lift up this burden, this burden that we need to be different in this society, that we need to look different, that as things get darker, we get lighter, we get brighter. But in order to do this, Lord, we're gonna need your energy to sustain us. We're gonna need your fire in our our bellies to drive us. So Father, give us that courage. Give us that passion, that good passion to speak and preach your word, Lord. We pray that you would charge us with this, that you would grant us this as we go into the rest of this day and into the week. Father, give us this, our daily bread. In your name we pray. Amen.